Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate. Canada's housing crisis is persistent and brutal. In August, the average rent was nearly $2,100 a month, and much higher in cities including Vancouver and Toronto. The average cost to buy a home was about $670,000 at that time, and again, much higher in Vancouver at $1.2 million, and Toronto at $1.1 million. The Canada Mortgage Housing Corporation says the country must build 5.8 million units by 2030 to hit affordable rates. We are on track for about half of that. Tackling this problem is going to take a multitude of policy efforts across orders of government, efforts that may benefit some people at the expense of others. And yet, what choice do we have? We must ensure everyone has a safe, affordable place to live. So how do we solve the housing crisis? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Carolyn Weitzman, housing policy expert, adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa, and author of Clara at the Door with a Revolver. Let's start by trying to assess the nature of the problem. We'll just take the country's biggest problem and try to boil it on down. The causes of the housing uh, crisis, both for owners and for renters, because often we kind of forget renters. Uh, What are the drivers, the primary drivers of housing affordability for renters and for owners in this country? Well, it kind of goes back to a set of decisions that were made, two of them in the 70s and one of them in the 1990s. I guess I'm a historian by training, so it always goes back to the past not and, and not just like five years ago when Justin Trudeau was elected, blah, 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 you know, all the nonsense that Pierre Polyevre is talking about right now. So in the early 1970s, um, giving some context, uh, there has been strong investment in non-market housing since the mid-1960s. The Pearson government, which uh, was a series of minority governments propped up by the NDP, uh, are giving um, 90% of the funding for mostly provincial public housing. So um, public housing is about 10, in some years 20, in one year 27% of total housing completions. Yes. Well, might you say, wow. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, uh, so um, what's happening at the same time is that there's tons and tons of purpose-built rental being built. And that's partly because of um, taxation concessions uh, like um, uh, accelerated depreciation on your investments in purpose-built rental, um, allowing people to, allowing developers to um, uh, not pay taxes on um, sales of apartment buildings if they're using those sales to build more apartment buildings, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So there's a whole suite of sweeteners there for um, uh, private market developers. And if you look at the numbers, you'll see that um, uh most moderate income households, sort of young professionals, are able to afford rental housing. Um, almost all um, median income households can afford to buy a starter home. Um, and not all, but quite a few low income households are being, their needs are being met. 
through public housing. So three things happen in 72. The first thing that happens, which is good uh, overall, is that the federal government goes, oh, that large-scale provincial public housing, uh, we've read a lot of stuff from the U.S., we've read our Jane Jacobs, we're not too sure about it, um, maybe we should let uh, a thousand flowers bloom and they start uh, supporting co-ops, um, nonprofit co-ops, they start supporting community housing, including supportive housing. That's great news. The next two things aren't such great news. So the second thing they do is they look at that whole suite of um, tax benefits to um, purpose-built um, rental developers, and they say, yeah, nah, we don't really want uh, uh, to give that huge tax benefit anymore. And immediately, purpose-built rental falls off a cliff. And yeah. what developers do is they switch over to this new tenure form called condominium. Mm -hmm. And there really aren't that many parts of most cities in Canada, certainly outside Quebec, that are zoned for multifamily. So developers just go and they switch from purpose-built rental to condos, which at the time are seen as affordable starter home ownership, but very quickly become unaffordable because of factor three that happens in 1972 or thereabouts, which is that the capital gains tax is brought in, but there's an exemption for the principal property. And if you look at the materials from the time, it's really explicit that they're saying, yeah, wouldn't it be great if moderate income households were able to um, save up for retirement and then they can cash out and they don't have to pay capital gains exemptions? It seems like a really great idea. But what happened, the, the sum total of those three things is non-market housing continued on for a couple of decades and purpose-built rental collapsed, including a lot of family-sized purpose-built rental. And... Um, home ownership suddenly became seen as a way to save for your retirement. Mm -hmm. um, and it attracts a lot of capital, not just from people owning their principal residence, but people seeking to flip their personal residence uh, uh, in order to make money. And um, that leads to increases in um, house prices from, from like, the um, early 80s onwards, you start seeing um, the the uh, average house price across Canada in 1980 until 1985 is about 2.5 times the uh, average um, uh, household income. 1985 onwards, it starts increasing and increasing and increasing. Today, uh, the average house price is 8.8 .8 times. Uh, the average uh, income in Canada. Uh, in Toronto, the average house price is um, almost 12 times um, uh, household income. In Vancouver, it's more than 13 times household income. So, you know, in order to get to medium income homeownership affordability, uh, house prices would have to go down to a third of what they are across Canada or a quarter of what they are in um, uh, Toronto or a fifth of what they are um, in Vancouver. And I don't really see that happening. So we oh, have to start thinking about alternatives. We, we could just grow wages by tenfold. That's another possibility, <laughs> getting one heck of an increase in, say, minimum wage. Um, Inflation is not, not a problem right now. So, that's right. So it should be <laughs> Go fine. Go wild. <laughs> it should be fine.
Is it fair to say like the core of the problem is, I mean, people say, well, the problem is supply, which seems obvious, but then the question is, okay, well, why is, why is supply constrained then? Right. So, I mean, it's easy to say it's a supply problem, but then the question is, okay, why is the supply and why are certain sorts of supply constrained? Because when people say it's supply and I I want to chase down this idea a little bit, um, that's entirely fair, but the type of supply matters, right? Um, you know, we, we could build exclusively single family detached homes that would not solve our problem, right? It would really not solve our problem. So whenever you're talking about supply, and I'm absolutely a supply sider, I think that all of those housing allowances and demand side um, uh, incentives just help these days private developers jack up um, rental prices. So we really need to start off with the question, who needs what kinds of housing and what sizes of housing, where and at what cost? And until we do that, we're not really going to effectively do any policy. And right now we have a lot of ineffective policy. I should have mentioned one other policy decision that happened in the early 1990s, which is the federal government after several decades of perhaps not supporting non-market housing as much as it should have been, as much as many, many reports said it should be, but at least it was supporting non-market housing. Just went, fuck it. <laughs> can I say that on Well, of course air? you can. I think a lot of people are saying it, right? Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, devolved responsibility onto mm-hmm. the provinces, and the provinces said, I don't want that hot potato, and in the case of Ontario, devolved it onto municipalities, and municipalities went, what, 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 what? You know, so um, no one took responsibility for non-market housing, and, and that, in turn, fell off a cliff. And from the 1930s onwards, you have Canadian government reports saying there's just no way that the private market is going to provide adequate housing for low-income people, and, you know, that that just got ignored for um, uh, three decades. Maybe if we ignore it, it will go away. I don't think that happened. Yeah, so I want to dial into non-market housing and the federal government. You you just talked about it a little bit. Uh, you've written about it in, in a few places. I want to I want to dial in. You you know in a a piece in the conversation you talked about this recently. You've discussed how the federal government played a major role in partnering with other orders of government to build uh, housing. As you just said, it fell off in the 1990s. But why did that come about? Was it just a matter of saying it's the 90s, uh, we're in a debt crisis, we're in a deficit crisis, we need to retrench, and we're just going to download to retrench, and we'll figure it out later? I mean, how how was that choice made? Yeah, it was a combination of kind of toxic beliefs. One of them was 100% neoliberalism. So you see across the world in the 80s and 90s that um, countries are turning their back on extraordinarily successful um, non-market programs. I mean, Sweden managed to build a million homes, the vast majority of them non-market, between 1965 and 1974. That's um, There were six and a half million people in Sweden then, so that's the equivalent of like a, a six million um, non-market home program in Canada would be. So they did it, you know, they did it modular. They did it um, uh, using land. They did it um, uh, through really good cooperation with municipalities. 
And it helped make Sweden a much richer country. It led to IKEA because when you have modular housing and you have standardized kitchens and standardized uh, rooms, you can have your standardized bookshelves and your standardized. Um, uh, I, I'm seeing readers, a behind listeners you. right now can't see behind me, but behind <laughs> me are three IKEA Hemnes bookshelves, which are doing the yeoman's work right now of supporting all those books. But yeah, yeah, I didn't know so, that. That's so thank the Million Home Program uh, for that. So uh, it was a super successful program. Well, Sweden said, yeah, we know that work. Never mind, though, now. And it just it stopped building homes, basically, sure. not just non-market homes. It really stopped building homes. Um, and, and now it's frantically going, what just did hit us, just like Canada is. Um, so it's a combination of the sort of neoliberal hey, don't trust government, hey, download subsidiarity, download to the lowest level of government, uh, hey, the private sector knows best, uh, you know, let's not intervene at all. Um, so that kind of nonsense was happening. Specifically in the Canadian context, there's all of this discussion around the Charlottetown Accord, and can we somehow make it less complicated with one level of government responsible for um, uh, each thing um didn't work very well for uh, tertiary education or healthcare but you know they went okay um provincial governments are responsible for property housing is property right so provinces you take it over and uh you know provinces were terribly happy about uh that but that was the decision that was made and i should say that it was made initially by Mulroney just in the same way that that conservative government said goods and services tax and great chance said that's terrible if i get in i'm going to completely um uh, turn that around and then great chance got in and we got the goods and services tax and we got the uh complete abandonment of uh, non-market housing so it's something you know again it, we can blame the liberals we can blame the conservatives why not both that's uh, that's my preference also and when appropriate the ndp too at the subnational level yep. i like to but i certainly <laughs> but I, but I, let, let's pick on the feds some more. Um, we both recognize that provinces, municipalities obviously play a central role. I'm sure someone is screaming at their their device or their computer right now saying, provinces, provinces, provinces. <laughs> and, and I get that. I've read the Constitution. Uh, I get it. But, but let's dial in on something that is critically important and something you talk about in a recent piece that you co-wrote with Alexandra Flynn in the conversation you write that contrary to recent comments from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, housing is, in fact, a direct federal responsibility. That's what history tells us. It is indeed. Uh, and then you talk about the right to housing. So I'm curious if you could run us through what a right to housing looks like and, and what does that have to do with the federal government? Yeah, it's kind of ironic that a Canadian helped draft the Universal Declaration of Human Rights way back in 48, but um, Canada's a signatory to numerous international covenants about the right to adequate housing. And in, and I'm not a lawyer, um, but um, unfortunately, Canada needed to get its own law saying that it um, uh, respected the right to housing, and it did that in 2019. There's actually um, a statute now, the National Housing Strategy Act, that says that Canada is committed to progressively realizing the right to adequate housing. So what does adequate housing mean? It has seven dimensions. Some of them are already measured by the Canadian government and considered by the Canadian government. Obviously, we're talking a lot about affordability. 
Um, it also has to do with access to basic services and not overcrowding people. That's already there in um, analysis of housing need, although it isn't necessarily there in the programs. What's missing, and some of them are just so obvious, one of them is accessibility for people with disabilities. That's a part of adequate housing, but it's not yet there in our statistical calculations of housing need. Another, and it's really, really important, in fact, I think you touched on it earlier, is uh, location. So at this point, with this kind of climate crisis, just building out infinite numbers of single-family detached homes ain't going to cut it anymore. Um, people need to be close to goods and services, sorry, jobs and services. And um, uh, that's part of the right to housing. Um, another aspect of the right to housing, which isn't there in national calculations, but needs to be, is security of tenure. Uh, 6% of renter households were evicted between 2016 and 2021. That's a lot of households. Um, so there are ways that the federal government has and can calculate secure tenure. Um, and that means not just being um, evicted because uh, the landlord wants to sell the house you live in or um, it's being torn down or it's being renovated or whatever. It also means being essentially evicted through um, really out of line rent increases. Um, there's a final aspect of adequate housing, which is hard for me to wrap my head around and hard for, I think, a lot of Canadians to wrap our head around, but it's really important. And that's cultural adequacy. And where that's come up most strongly is in Indigenous conceptions of housing, where nearness to kin and nearness to nature and nearness to, um, you know, a sense of place is terribly important and it's part of the justification not the only justification for canada having a separate for indigenous by indigenous housing uh, strategy um, which canada has been promising since 2015 but not necessarily delivering so all of that is part of adequate housing it's all part of what the un considers adequate housing it's all Part of what the special rapporteur, who was a Canadian until fairly recently, Lani Farha, measures in various countries. But Canada's done the thing that it does sometimes, which is it's paid enormous lip service to the right to housing. For it to look at a housing policy document that doesn't talk about the right to housing and then completely ignores mm -hmm. it when it comes to programs. And then comes up with baffling statements like housing isn't primarily a federal responsibility I, I'm, I'm still trying to wrap and my head around that. Dudes, you know well, like well, exactly and even liberals <laughs> i see liberals now coming out and saying the federal government should never have gotten out of the housing game in the 1990s when liberals were most of the 90s yes. governing all but all the two years Pre present liberal is right about past liberal that's right i mean of course it's very easy to be right about past liberals when yeah you're a present liberal or, or <laughs> Um, I, I want to come back to to uh, vulnerable uh, poor folks. I, I mean, I, we're talking in many cases about a crisis that hits people very, very differently. It's one thing to say, ah, I've got a you know six hundred thousand dollar house, and now I'm struggling to upgrade to a nine hundred thousand dollar house. I'm like, I feel a little bit less sympathetic than someone who's like, I can't get through the day. Uh, you've written that more than one point three million households live in, and I'm quoting 
unaffordable, overcrowded, or uninhabitable private homes. Yep. And so I want to think about those people right now. Who are these folks and, and what sort of specific housing challenges do they face that are obviously much more significant than, than those that, that, you know, higher earners are facing? Yeah, I'm actually going to take you from 1.3 to about 4 million pretty quickly. Okay. So Statistics Canada, in its census, every five years, measures the number of private households that are, and I'll get to what private households is in a minute, that are paying more than 30% of their household income on rent, which is a internet, like at one level, why 30%? I don't know, but it is the international measurement of unaffordability. Um and or they're overcrowded, and there's a way to measure overcrowding, and or they're in um, a, a house that's in really conditions of poor repair, leaking walls, mold, et cetera, et cetera. So that's 1.45 million. Now that's really, really low because the census was collected in May 2020. And what was happening in May 2020? It was the um, COVID, and more to the point, it was the temporary COVID income relief measures, in, um, most uh, notably CERB, Canadian uh, Canada Emergency Response Benefit. That increased very low income households, the people on welfare basically, it increased their incomes by 500%. So if you look at the 2016 figures on core housing need, it's uh, 1.7 million, not 1.45 million. So 1.45 million is a total, total lowball because those were temporary benefits that alas are gone now. It was a really interesting experiment in a natural experiment in guaranteed annual income because that single-handedly did more for low-income housing than anything the federal government's done in 30 years, but it was temporary. Okay. So that's 1.45, and of those 1.45 million households, almost 80% of them are low income. They're in the bottom income quintile. They are less than 50% of median income, however you want to count it, they're low income. Now let's get back to that definition. Back in 1991, when Statistics Canada and the CMHC said, we're going to start measuring poor housing need, they made a conscious decision to exclude students. Canada is virtually the only country in the world that does that. And you can still look on the website of StatsCan and see that students are, tertiary students under 30, are considered to be entering a temporary and voluntary um, period of poverty. Thank you very much, yeah. you know, federal government for that. Um, it's it's nonsense. I mean, you know, most people need college or university degrees in order to get decent jobs. So I don't know what's voluntary about it. And I don't know about you, but it wasn't a temporary condition for me. So. <laughs> I spent well, most of my twenties as a student. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Temporary fifteen years is yeah, yeah. I was in grade twenty five at one point. I think. <laughs> Anyhow. Um, so that's a political decision to exclude students. And when I say exclude students. You can find any information anywhere on how many students in Canada are living in unaffordable, overcrowded, and uninhabitable housing. But my guess is a lot of them, you know, there's 2.2 million students in Canada. Um, 
even if you exclude 35% of them living with their parents, probably in many cases involuntarily, yeah, I mean, that still leaves 1.4 million other households. So start jumping up that 1.45 million, in fact, double it right there. Okay. Homeless people are excluded because if you're unsheltered and if you're in an emergency shelter, um, you're not in a private household, you're paying zero for your rent because you don't have rent. Uh, so they're excluded. Um, again, the we don't count homeless people terribly well, and that means they don't count very well. Mm -hmm. If you look at Finland, that's actually decreased homelessness, you have um, annual counts that include people in health institutions and people doubled up and all kinds of things that aren't included in Canada. So unknown number estimated 235,000 per year. Um, then you have to add some other populations. So private household means you have a separate entrance and a separate kitchen and bathroom. So that excludes people in rooming houses, it excludes people in group homes, it excludes people who are um, in any kind of health or correctional institution who don't have a permanent home. So that's about 700,000 other people. So, you know, you start adding on to that and realizing that most of the groups that I'm adding on, students, homeless people, people in congregate housing, A, are in terrible housing conditions, B, are low income. So there's so much unmet need right now. And I sometimes get a little bit frustrated with some of my rights-based colleagues when they go, oh, if we just dealt with, I don't know, vacant properties or Airbnbs or you know, whatever, that that would somehow equal 3 million low-cost homes. Um, it, it doesn't. I'm not saying that Airbnbs aren't a big problem, but that we actually need new supply. Mm -hmm. uh, and we need new supply that's built for people, the people who are going to be using it, people with disabilities who need supports, including people in long-term care who aren't counted in housing need, you know, um, student housing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. As long as we keep on not counting these people, they're these people. Us, we're not mm -hmm. going to count. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for people need to be counted to count. And and I think yeah. that's, uh, that's such an extraordinary point that, that we forget, but it ought to be very ordinary. Uh, you mentioned supply again, and I want to come back to it once more because I, I want to try to tease out a, a distinction here. On supply, we face policy and resource issues for some types of stock. So I'm curious what the balance is between, say, stock, uh, understock as a, as a policy problem and understock as a resource problem, which is to say, like, we don't have the materials and the people to, to dig this thing out and to, to dig the foundations and to pour the concrete and to set the frames, because obviously there, there's a challenge there too. How much of the problem is policy and how much of it is just like having people do the work? Well, I'm going to give another country as an example again, or a nation state, and that's Singapore. So 1964, Singapore gains independence from um, the British Empire, it's pretty poor and it doesn't have a terribly skilled workforce. And there is a tremendous amount of overcrowding and um, there was a needs assessment done uh, of uh, the, the um, needs in, in Singapore. 
And in the next 10 years, they met 100% of the needs. Now, Singapore has an unusual system. Basically, um, the Singapore government expropriated most of the land in that city state. It's there. There's only so far you can, yeah. you know, <laughs> there's only so much land yeah. in Singapore. It's a small place. And they started building again using um, uh, a few companies who, um, you know, were on their approved list. They hadn't screwed up previous projects. Um, and they just started building high rises, but high rises with green spaces all around with um, uh, schools and um, cafes and and uh, little recreation areas in the bottom. I don't know whether you've ever been to Singapore, but it actually has a really high proportion of green space, and it's it's over fifty percent of people use public transit, so they aren't wasting road space, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that was a poor country, and by the time it was finished in the mid seventies, it had become quite a rich country through the process of you know, what we could call return on investment or social return on investment, et cetera, et cetera. You know, none of the places I'm going to be talking about are um, perfect in all ways. And I'm not saying Singapore is perfect sure. in all ways. <laughs> okay. <laughs> nor am I saying Sweden is perfect in all ways, nor am I saying that, say, Vienna is perfect in all ways. They all got their problems, but um, they did housing great. I mean, Vienna is another example where, you know, it was left pretty much in rubble after World War One. And they created a municipal um, housing company and with a one-time tax, it was a very highly progressive tax with very little paid by tenants and very much built by estate owners, they started building a lot of public housing. I guess what I'm saying, David, is, you know, if you will it, you can make it happen. Mm -hmm. um, what has happened in Canada is that there's been one program in the national, well, it wasn't originally in the national housing strategy, but it ended up being part of it called the Rapid Housing Initiative. And that program has been incredibly successful. Not only has it built more houses than the target, closer to 10,000 than 4,500 homes, uh, deeply affordable, but it's helped grow some modular housing companies from nowhere to the point where they're internationally exporting. So I don't want to sound like the guy in the graduate is like plastics, you know, but I, I am a great <laughs> believer in modular technology. It's not the magic bullet, but it has made a big difference in the past. Um, is there a labor shortage? Yes. Is there going to continue to be a labor shortage as long as construction workers don't earn enough to live in the places that they're building? Probably. Um, again, it has to do with that um, growing gap between wages and affordable housing. And one of my great hopes is at some point the union movement will stop investing in real estate investment trusts that are dehousing people and will start investing in genuinely affordable housing for their workers. Yeah, I, I, that's such an important point because it reminds us that housing policy is bound up with with other policies uh, as well. Uh, uh, and speaking of other policies, I want to get into what feels like a country that is a house of cards. And uh, we, we, I know there's plenty of like Canada's broken, Canada's not broken. There's that whole debate over what to call it. I don't particularly care what we call it, but it feels to me like a house of cards. 
and I'm worried about how dangerous some of the underlying currents are, not just on housing, but on broader affordability. So we have sky-high housing costs to start. We have the highest household debt in the G7. We have extraordinarily high consumer debt, greater than the GDP. It's at $2.32 trillion earlier this year. Interest rates remain high. Knowing what you know about history, knowing what you know about housing, is, is there a risk that this house of cards collapses? Is there a risk of a recession that drags down prices? Uh, and if so, is that a net good in the long term? Where are we standing here vis-a-vis -vis all that? I don't see it as a net good, and I also am very concerned about it. I mean, Canada has the highest level of household debt and certainly amongst developed countries or rich countries. Um, it also has one of the lowest levels of government spending amongst wealthy countries. You like program spending? Program spending, yeah. uh, particularly welfare program spending. So, you know, if you look at countries around the world, the UK, which, by the way, is doing a terrible job, but the UK spends about 1.4% of its GDP on housing. France, more effectively, about 1.4% of its uh, GDP on housing. And Canada spends 0.2% of its GDP on housing. So it's, it's, it's a classic private pain, you know, like household pain that's happened through privatization and everybody. And again, you know, I, I too feel equivocal about the World Bank. I too feel equivocal <laughs> about the World Economic Forum, but everybody's, you know, the OECD, which I feel neutral about. So it's just, you know, um, the organization of a whole bunch of nations. They're all handing out huge red cards to Canada. If you look at the annual mm -hmm. reports for Canada, they're going, yeah, you're in trouble. Yep, 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 you're in trouble. Uh-huh, you're really in trouble now. For several years now, we've been saying you're in trouble. So that's that's sort of the tenor right now of um, international um, uh, report cards on Canada's economic state. Um, and, you know, if I was Christian Freeland, I'd be saying, actually, those international folks aren't saying you're in a lot of debt and need to cut back. They're actually saying, you've got a housing problem, tackle it or else. Um, and, and that is, you know, worth listening to. You think we will tackle it? I want to close out in the last couple of minutes to try to, to talk solutions. Uh, obviously, everyone now agrees that it's a problem. No one can hide from it. Uh, every order of government admits it's a problem. So to go back to your uh, question, are there signs of hope? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm really excited by the way that everyone's talking about housing. I would love to see more space, more airspace between the political parties holding up different um, visions. So right now you have the Conservative Party saying some interesting things. I'm, I'm appalled by some aspects of the Conservative Party, certainly from a social perspective, but what they're saying is, gee, we need a lot of housing supply. I agree with that. Um, we need to address um, municipal barriers to supply. Kind of agree with that. The problem is that certainly when it comes to Ontario, but I think generally across Canada, the Conservatives are great believers in let's just give the developers free reign, which is kind of what's been happening in the last 30 years with the proviso that municipalities have become increasingly um, 
barriers to development. Absolutely. Like NIMBY is is the NIMBY yeah. problem? It's a NIMBY problem. It's um, just throwing on, like, absolutely, there need to be regulations about affordability. Absolutely, there need to be regulations around climate change. But a lot of the stuff about heights and angular planes and, you know, it, it's just complete garbage. Um, and the other um, aspect of municipal regulation is nobody likes a property tax, but um, it is a direct tax. It is a um, it's absolutely a tax that's regressive because tenants in um, uh, multifamily housing generally pay higher rates than homeowners. I mean, I could go on about the property tax, but the bottom line is Toronto has one of the lowest property taxes across Canada. Vancouver has one of the lowest property taxes across Canada. Um, there have been many great ideas coming out of the CCPA about progressive property taxes. Just get some money and stop taxing new development like it's this horrible thing that you have to uh, punish people for wanting to move into cities that have jobs and services. So I have a lot of problems with the way that um, uh, municipal governments are trying to get revenue out of development charges. They say, ha we're making the developers pay. They're not. They're making tenants, newcomer tenants, and newcomer homeowners pay, and that's not fair. So that's my my rant about municipal governance. But the thing about the conservatives, they're going, it's all the municipality's fault, which is nonsense. Um, the liberals are saying, it's all the municipality's fault, so let's give them carrots instead of sticks. And I'm like, okay, but like, look to yourself, look in the mirror, you know, it, every single level of government has failed. The provincial government's failed in terms of tenant protection and in terms of punitive welfare rights. Um, the um, federal government has to realize that it has the greatest powers and the greatest revenues, and it needs to lead in non-market housing. Municipalities have failed because they do everything but um, help enable um, uh, affordable housing. So all three curse on all three levels of government. Both the Conservatives and the Liberals have decided to blame the municipal government. The NDP at the moment is being a bit weak sauce and it's saying, yeah, we really hate those big developers. Yeah. You know, and it's like, yeah, okay, I'm not too crazy about big developers too. I'm also mom and pop landlords are pretty shitty too, you know, so, so fine. I curse on them all. Great. Um, tell me what you're going to do to greatly increase low-cost housing across Canada. And yeah, non-market housing, great, do it. Um, spend the money, do the low-cost financing. But there also needs to be some affordable market housing. Tell us how you're going to do that. Um, and that's really the challenge for sort of the um, the NDP. Well, that, I mean, I could talk about this all day. And and incidentally, I'm watching the NDP closely because they say they're coming up with new demands for Trudeau. They sense that the government is weak. They're in a position of, of power, at least insofar as they are propping up the minority parliament uh, government. They are in an outsized positions of power because they kind of got lucky with the seat count of the parliament. Uh, so hopefully they'll have something on that because... Some of the best housing good. policy in Canada came out of the minority governments of Pearson and of Trudeau. So this, in some ways, is nothing new for Canada. But I really, you know, like given that the NDP 
introduced Medicare and Medicare was about the right to health. I want to see their big ideas, big ideas about the right to housing in Canada. I want to see that too. And I, like like you, I want to see it from everyone. I want to have, I mean, I yeah. think a real no, I debate want, is I want program. a real debate. I yeah. want, okay, right to housing, go. How are you going to do it, conservatives? How are you going to do it, um, uh, liberals? How are you going to do it, NDP? I mean, the best mayor that Toronto ever had, um, I may be wrong, is David Crombie, who was a Tory. Uh, housing first was introduced first in Alberta. It has a lot of flaws, but hey, that was a conservative government that introduced it. It was also a conservative government in Finland that introduced its much more successful housing first strategy. So this isn't something that's owned by right or left, but I'd like them to start wherever their, whatever their ideology is from everyone has a right to an affordable, adequate home. How are you going to do it? Go. I think that's a perfect note on which to end. How are you going to do it? Go. And and we'll certainly be following <laughs> up one way or the other with this. And uh, I, I, certainly, I suspect one way or the other we'll be chatting again in the future. I certainly hope so. Thank you so much for joining me today. This was fantastic. It was a pleasure, David. And as always, thanks to Carolyn Smith, Ross, Clark, and Aisha Jar who make the show not just possible, but infinitely better than it would be without them. And to you for listening, I hope that you'll tune in uh, again in a couple of weeks when we start talking about uh, the right wing in Canada and what comes next. And I have a feeling you'll be paying close attention to the housing debate, and we'll track back on that before too long as well. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you back here in two weeks.